Now back to Puckett and the Gas Man on Seattle Sports Radio 950 KJR. Entertaining sports talk. All righty, here we go. Our weekly visit with our guy. Right now on the world famous, the star-studded Beacon Plumbing Hotline is our guy Curtis Crabtree. Curtis Crabtree, welcome to the show. How are you, buddy? What's going on, guys? Uh, how was your Friday? What uh, You were on hole number 10, right? And people got to use was. your drive. And how, how did that go for you? Did you put many drives in the middle of the fairway? Yeah, I, I put a lot of drives in the fairway, and then Bucky hit several way beyond mine. Really? Now, some of them went, went yeah, like about, you know, 40 degrees right or left, right. you know, on certain occasions. But um, the few times that, you know, when Bucky gets it right, it goes up. Freaking mile. Is that's a that's the is ten the long par four right with the water on the right? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's yep. a poke. Yeah. Did, now let me ask you, Curtis. What, what did it cost when I pulled up to get her? Either yeah. you or Bucky to hit a shot for me? Well, you could pay five bucks to get one of us to hit a shot, mm-hmm. or if you gave us ten, all three of us would, and you could pick the best of the lot. Okay. Right? Okay. So, now, did, did did anybody get tight with a buck there, or did they did because, <laughs> because I used to do a golf tournament, and we did the sure. same thing, and people would come through, and there was always a handful of guys saying, oh. "Well, no," and I'm like, well, "What are you here for? What is yeah. the point of you being here if you're not going to play some of the games? Were, were guys anting up, or was anybody tight with a buck?" Most of the groups went ten. And, That's and a good job, all three guys. of us. Partly because, partly because I think they wanted to see the comedy aspect of watching Slick hit. In addition to, oh, sure. you know, to drive out there for him. Did he put so, any in the fairway? Oh yeah, yeah. Did no, he? he he was he was hitting about a fifty percent oh, margin there. You know, he'd either me. tow one straight into the water, or he'd mm. hit this runner that would just skip down there about two hundred yards straight down the middle. So, you know, I put a number bad. of I put a number of those in the water on ten. So he was on 10, and you still didn't go out to see him. That would have been, like, right out of the clubhouse, but you didn't have time to work Curtis oh, into your I, day, I, huh? Would have Puck, Puck made it sound like you were out on 16 or something. He says, no, I never saw Curtis. He was on the back nine doing it. You were on the 10th oh. tee? Yeah, but I was. we played the yeah, front. Yeah, 10th tee. You played the front. Well, when you get done with nine, 10 is right there. No, I was, but then I had to work the room. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you did. We got to shake hands. <laughs> I needed to go in the van and pass out. I did. Um, oh man, did, how much did they? Did you ever figure out what your longest drive was? No, but uh, the last group that went down there came back and said, "Yeah, there's like a cluster of 15 balls out there. I assume they're all yours." So nice. I was somewhere probably the the fairway was pretty hard, so I got extra rollout I don't deserve. So mm. it was probably around 280 or so. Mm. Mickelson, if you're uh, the rules official, USGA. Uh, Curtis Crabtree, disqualify him, yes or no? Oh, God, I've gone back and forth on it all the way. I, I think you probably have to disqualify him. Yeah. Um, just because who knows how many shots he takes to get down there. He stays right. in the tournament, which then affects, you know, finishing order of different players throughout the rest of the, the tournament, who gets paid, what, what guys get paid, you know, Ryder Cup points, all the, you know, the, there's so much more that goes into it than just that particular putt. And for him to say whether it was accurate or not, because I think he probably switched position on it, that it was intentional and he thought about doing it for a long time, ah, it doesn't sit particularly great with me. So uh, you probably have to disqualify him at that point. So, What do you think of the overall tournament, Curtis? And it's easy to throw uh, you know throw darts at it right now, but I mean, good Lord, the, the course, it was just what happened in 2004 out there where the courses, they say, got away from us. Uh, Saturday was kind of a joke. Sunday they poured half the Atlantic Ocean on it, and suddenly we got guys going out there, you know, looking like Johnny Miller and shooting a sixty-three. Uh, it, it just 
it seems like the USGA has to have a good long look in the mirror after this and say, okay, we want to make it hard, but we got to keep it under control. Or do they? Is all hey all's well that ends well, and it was a, it, it provokes a lot of conversation. What do you, what's your overall view of this? Well, I think three of the four rounds were pretty solid, all considered. Saturday certainly got away from them, and it's almost a mirror image of what happened back in the seventies when you had. Um, you know, you had Johnny Miller shoot 63 on Sunday at Oakmont in 73, and then Wingfoot was a massacre the next year um, where Hale Irwin won at seven over par. Um, and it felt like this was kind of, you know, they went into this wanting it to be a bit of a, a, a change from what was last year when Brooks Kepka won in the, you know, what was it, 14 under or something mm-hmm. like that a year ago at Aaron Hills, and they wanted it to get back to, a number that looked a little bit more reasonable, and certainly they let it get get away from Saturday uh, a little bit in the afternoon. I, I don't know what the solution was because early on Saturday there were some scores that were posted, and it seemed like the course was in pretty good shape, but with the wind and the way that the course was that day, it just drained out and got rock hard, and nobody could you know, nobody could hold a green at certain spots near the holes. A couple holes were in a little bit of a precarious situation, and obviously that got away from them at times, including Phil Mickelson. Um, The USGA just takes it right to the knife's edge all the time. And I think that the really disappointing part is that it – I think the the casual fan comes away thinking that the courses look bad when this happens. You know, and it it was a different instance that happened at, at Chambers Bay, but, you know, it was under their watch as well. Um, Shinnecock in 2004, uh, they take it right up to the limit, and sometimes that limit gets crossed, and you end up with situations like you had Saturday afternoon, and I think that's unfortunate. Curtis Crabtree, he covers it all. Baseball, football, golf, uh, Formula One racing, he does it all for us. How was the uh, weekend at the ballpark? I mean, again, you're covering the game, and I get that. You want to get caught up in it. Uh, It's got to be fun, though, to cover a team in which you're getting 45000 a plus uh, at the game. Yeah, about the only time I can remember that the stadium is being that far in recent memory is usually filled with Blue Jays fans. Right. Um, so uh, certainly to see, you know, 46,000 written down on the scorecard of uh, fans in attendance, and certainly it wasn't all Boston fans or anything like that. There was certainly a pocket of them over the, the top of the Red Sox dugout throughout the weekend. But in general, I felt it was pretty Mariners Mariners fan base. And, you know, you win two of uh, two of four games against the Red Sox, played the series tremendously well. Three, what was it, three one-run uh, one games throughout the weekend, which is obviously the norm for them. But, you know, good, you know, competitive baseball games. You take five of seven on a homestand against, the, uh, you know, maybe your chief competitor for a playoff spot in the Angels and then play toe-to-toe with Boston through the weekend. It's, you know, it's all you can ask for at this point in time. And, you know, anybody I think that's still waiting to jump on the bandwagon and thinking that this is a pretty good baseball team, it's almost as though the, the playoffs in the American League are set, barring something right. catastrophic. It's going to be Boston, New York, Seattle, Houston, and somebody out of the Central. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, Seattle is well on its way to being a playoff team. It's just a matter Knock of what they be when they get there. Knock on wood, will you? <laughs> Come on. The, uh, Don't you know, jinx it. Uh, uh, Curtis, one of the reasons we get into this business, all of us, is we like telling stories. 
and there's no better story, and, and we don't get carried away. There's still a lot of the season left, but no better story than Wade LeBlanc. And it, baseball's unique this way. I mean, I guess there's the occasional what you would call journeyman player in the NFL who gets lucky at the right time and his ability, you know, everything kind of works out. But it's pretty rare. Hardly ever happens in basketball. Baseball's unique this way that a guy like him who has had every opportunity to say enough, I'm going to go home, I got other things I can do, time and time again has said, I'll fight through it, I'll find it, and now suddenly finds himself in the spotlight and delivering. It, it's it's really a cool story, isn't it? Yeah, it is, especially since we got to see him the last time he was here a couple of years ago in the same sort of boat. And, you know, he played well for them that year, too. He helped keep them in that season yeah. until they ultimately couldn't get over the hump late later on. But he was a big reason that team continued to stay in the hunt um, up until the latter stages of the season, too. And it's just because, you know, his fastball is 86 miles an hour. He doesn't have overpowering stuff that I, it tends to be overlooked that he can pitch pretty solid. And so, um, you know, he's made trips. He, he's been pitching in Japan, I believe, at one point in time, switching up and down between the minors. When they traded for him a couple of years ago, he was in AAA and came and saved the day for him. And certainly for him to go and throw into the eighth inning on Saturday against one of the best lineups in baseball and just be all over it, it's certainly a, a cool thing to see for sure. It reminds me in some regards that you, you mentioned the NBA. It reminds me of that kid, uh, Andre Ingram, I think his name is, who got, you know, toiled for 10 years in the D League and then played a couple games at the end of the season for the Lakers. Mm-hmm. That was that was kind of a fun story this year for the same sort of reason. Yeah, he's, I mean, to for what he did on Saturday against that lineup, I mean, you saw yesterday how potent that lineup can be, and for what he did, for he he throws junk ball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he's a junk ball pitcher, and you know it's you know, when he laughs afterwards about man, I, I'm topping eighty six. But I, you know, when we had him on, you know, last week or a couple of weeks ago, after you know, I offended him by saying I should we should feed his wife to. Um, the alligators, because uh, she and puts he, ketchup on a steak. I, I want to say you didn't mean that. I, um, I hasten to add you did uh, not mean that in your heart of hearts. No, I did. I don't I think did. you did. I really uh, But, he, you know, he. we asked him, like, is it to your advantage you throw this way? Because the rest of the league doesn't. I mean, most of the rest of the league throws like Paxton. Or, you know, choose another starting pitcher that's throwing 96, 97 miles an hour. And, you know, when he agreed, he said, yeah, I think, I think so. Because the rest of the league offensively sees a, a different style of pitcher. You know, I'm kind of a throwback. That uh, that it does help me, Curtis. Yeah, I mean, whether it's Jamie Moyer for all those years or Jason Vargas making the All Star mm-hmm. team last year for Kansas City, there's a few guys that have you know pretty pretty average you know life on their fastball and you know mid 80s sort of stuff, and then you know it's their ability to command the rest of the zone and um, use their breaking pitches effectively, mix and change speeds, and get around the get around it. Uh, you know, by being savvy, and when he is on top of it, he can he can do that even against one of the best lineups in baseball. Now it will be interesting to see since he's going to face Boston again in just a few days on the next turn through the rotation mm-hmm. back in Fenway. It, you know how he holds up against it then as well because that you know though they will have had a chance to see him obviously just five days ago. Um, so that'll be an interesting benchmark to see how he handles that. But certainly, you know, there's not all that many people that pu- that play like he does and pitch like he does anymore. And so it is a, a little bit of a different kind of departure from, from the norm. That game Friday night, again, there's so much to unpack from the weekend. I mean, we can yeah. go back to Thursday night. And I mean, Felix, I liked what I saw there. And I mean, we're all kind of hoping 
sometimes against hope that, that Felix can can get it going again the way he did for years and years and years and as a different style pitcher. But then Friday night where they, they it was funny, Blowers said something on the telecast I thought it was really interesting, Curtis, and, and, and I think this is a phrase you'd use when you're playing the Red Sox and the Yankees because for whatever reason, those games always seem to take forever. And Blowers, when they're down, what was it? Was it six to they're ahead three to nothing, then they're down six to three, six right? Three, yeah. Blowers right. says Blowers says, and this is not a baseball phrase, he goes, There's a lot of time left in this game. And I thought it was it's exactly right. The Red Sox take forever to you don't get too discouraged. It's only the third inning. Normally you'd say, Hey, there's still, you know, six mm-hmm. more and and I thought the M's did such a great job of of you know of, of recognizing that they almost did it again yesterday. They can't just come back. You know, I I get that, but this team believing in itself right now, Curtis, is a fun thing to see because that's such a huge in a sport where the best guys fail seven out of ten times. If you got a team that collectively believes in itself, that can shave that margin that much more in your favor. Yeah, and and you know Scott Service even talked about that after yesterday's game was that you know. They they get behind there and get it back to I think it what was it five two um, at one point in the middle of the game there yeah. they load mm-hmm. up the bases at one point um, and have a chance to do some damage and only get one run out of it but again they feel like they can get back into those sort of situations obviously it spiraled away from them a little bit late but that'll happen every now and again when you're playing a really good team um, and your your luck runs out a little bit because they have been a little bit lucky this year to win this many one run games and all of the like but um, certainly they, there is a belief that they can be in every game that they're they're playing no matter what the situation is and find a way to come back and that's you know I think that's pretty rare you know there's there's been times in the past you you guys both know it that you know the Mariners fall behind two nothing in the first couple innings that's it game over they like they weren't going to come out of those sort of situations that's just not not the case with this roster at all our uh, our ace reporter we call him the Mike Wallace of 950 KJ Curtis <laughs> Crabtree joining us here on the Beacon Plumbing hotline now, one more question i want to then switch quickly to just to uh, the Seahawks because they have announced training camp on the schedule for that I thought John Morosi, MLB.com, I'm not sure if you've seen the article, kind of wrote, uh, he was talking about the M's, and uh, he talked about a couple of trade possibilities for them, uh, Boyd out of Detroit, and, and also uh, Jay Happ out of Toronto. But he was talking about Robinson Cano, and listen, here's the record that they've had since they haven't had Robinson Cano. Uh, he cites like a, a rival club official who said, the Mariners with D. Gordon playing at second base uh, is more energy, and they're a more complete team with him there. And then kind of hints at that, there is going to be a robust debate over how much Robinson Cano plays uh, when he comes back to the team in August. What do you think their plan, or I just speculate, uh, of their plans going to be when when he comes back? We have a poll question out there about asking, is he going to split time with Healy, going to split time with Cruz? Should he play second base? Should he not play at all? Kind of surprised a lot of the votes saying he, he shouldn't play at all. It's going to be interesting how they navigate these waters when he comes back. Well, I think he will play. I think he will play second base, but it won't be every day. I think they will find a way to, you know, at that point in the season, you know, you might want to give Nelson Cruz a couple days off here and there. You let him DH a little bit. And obviously D has the flexibility to play some center field over that stretch as well. You probably lose a tick defensively, but you're, you know, if you're, if you're having D go back to center, you're basically having Robinson Cano replace Guillermo Heredia. And that is still a win for for the offensive portion of the roster um, because Robinson is obviously a more productive offensive player than Guillermo Heredia is, and that would be the switch that you would make more often than not. Now, when you get down to the final week of the season, if you're not right in the mix of trying to get 
the 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 division or a wild card spot specifically or anything like that. I think you do go back to sitting Robinson Cano down the rest of the way and get back used to playing with the roster you're going to have in the playoffs since he's not going to be eligible to play. But I think I think you absolutely play him when he gets back and obviously second base is his position. And I think that, you know, you might lose a tick defensively with him there, but obviously D Gordon's pretty, has shown to be pretty solid in center field as well. So I don't think you lose a ton with the, with the changeover. And um, he can certainly give you some pop in the lineup. And I think, you know, there's going to be a time where they're going to need that down here as well. Uh, the the argument against though, putting him in second and then moving D back out to center and replacing Heredia in the lineup is that if they're still playing the way they are now in August, do you want to mess around that much, or do you say to Cano, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna play you some at first. We're gonna play you some at DH, but but you know why would we fix something that's not broken?" And that's a long way off. It's eight weeks from now. We'll see if they're still playing that way, Curtis. But if they are playing that way, I wonder how much that'll factor into what they want to do for for to to oppose your pretty logically and well laid out argument of why he should get back in the lineup. Well, we'll see if Houston loses any games between now. Yeah, and they're not gonna lose. Look right at this. Now. Look yeah. at the schedule. They're not losing again. Till the all, till yeah, the I mean they got a pretty lax schedule specifically before the All Star break. I think it's the, the easiest schedule in baseball up until that point. Um, and so, I mean, the, the the question really becomes like, where are you at um, in mid August when when he's able to come back anyway? If you're eight game, eight nine games behind the Astros for the division at that point, because that's just the way it shakes out, anything like that, then I don't know if it matters so much how you kind of handle it and figure out uh, the best way to kind of manage your personnel till the end of the season. Uh, there, there's going to be options that they have available, but I don't think just having him continue to sit the rest of the season is going to be the route that they go. Uh, all right. Uh, one quick thing just on the Seahawks. They made their announcement. The uh, training camp beginning July 26th will conclude uh, August 16th. Uh, fans interested in uh, attending Seahawks training camp presented by Safeway much, uh, must register through the team's website uh, beginning on Thursday, June 21st at 10 a.m. So that will be sold out by like 10.02, I would assume. But training camp's almost here, Curtis. Your your summer of fun is almost over. It's not almost here, Puck. Don't even go there. That's six weeks, okay? I'm going to take advantage of it. All right. Appreciate it. Uh, you, I'll see you Thursday. You will. A lot of money on the line. A lot of money online. Okay. He and I, Curtis, have got a, we got a golf match. Oh, is that right? I'm going to take down Match Curtis. play? Yeah, I'm going to take him down. Wow. $100 a hole, Curtis. <laughs> I'm, okay. on, I'm, on, I'm on Bovada right now. Curtis, Curtis is like minus 6000 Take Curtis. <laughs> uh, trust me, take Curtis. All right, Curtis, we'll talk to you next week. All right, see you guys. There he is. Uh, Curtis Crabtree, our, our ace reporter at 950KJR. All right, we come back. We will uh, reset. And uh, our daily poll question, it's been a fantastic turnout on our daily poll question about Robinson Cano. What should the Mariners do with Robinson Cano when he comes back? Split time at first base with Ryan Healy. Split time with Nelson Cruz at DH. Play second base or don't play at all.